Well, when was the last time you had to pay sales tax on something you bought? Maybe it was today, but I would say uh, definitely within the last week. But even sales tax, uh, quite honestly, they're not as painful as when you have to pay those property taxes twice a year. Amen? Or however you pay them in your mortgage, however, uh, when you add them all up, it's like that really hurts. Or maybe it's those uh, repeated taxes that you pay on your automobile to have a sticker in the window of your car, right? Why do I need to have a sticker in my window? Or the taxes that you pay to have the license plates on your vehicle. You know, the government has a, a reach far deeper in our lives than simply paying taxes. The government somehow continues to reach into our lives concerning birth, health, business, and lo and behold, even death. You die and the government says, hello family. You name it and the government wants to be a part of your life story. And if you don't know what I'm talking about in all those areas, all you have to do is when you get your check and you open it up and you do what I did when I received my first check when I was in high school, the uh, first question I asked, well, who in the world is Ficka? I understand at least most of these other things, but who is Ficka? Why do I have to pay this? And I remember as a kid I was thinking, of, uh, thinking about that. Uh, is there a way I can bow out of these things? But you, like uh, uh, some people that I know, that we don't like the intrusion. In fact, sometimes we even despise the government's constant push into your private life. This is all true unless, unless you need them to defend you from some foreign force. Or if you know that you don't have any money and uh, you need to make it to the hospital to see a doctor, and you say, well, uh, doesn't the county at least pay for it? Then we say we want government into our lives. In fact, one of the things that divide our political parties, parties it specifically deals with how much governments can intrude into our life and into our homes. Some like the idea of big government, while others are repulsed by the idea, especially as it continues to grow bigger and bigger, and some say out of control. But how do you, how do I, how do we respond to this idea of government entering into our lives faithfully as disciples of Jesus Christ. Uh, people who love Jesus, who exist to promote his kingdom agenda. What do we do about government then if we're all for uh, the kingdom of God? We say, yes, God, yes, God, no government, no government, but yes, God. 
What do we do? How do we respond to this? And I ask this question, and we're going to see this a little bit later, because even though the hand of government, we see it, it helps individuals. But we also know that the hand of government is not always godly. Amen? Turn with me to Mark chapter 12, verse 13. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. We now, again, as we continue to fast, on the fast track to the cross of Jesus Christ, that we see Jesus again confronted by a couple of groups of folks who want him out of the way. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and do not care about anybody's opinion. In other words, Jesus, we know you. You're a good man. You don't even care what anybody thinks. Says, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Amen? As you know, all flattery is not necessarily meant to make you feel good. Everybody who flatters you, that that flattery, uh, that you may have to look at it with a suspicious eye sometime, right? Uh, have you ever been a part of a conversation when uh, someone you, you know that, that typically they've been kind of distanced from you, but then all of a sudden they come to you and they say something like to Andrea, they'll say like, uh, hey there, my best friend forever, Right? Uh, the first thing that we say is, okay, what you want? Because we know that they are not uh, giving us this compliment, uh, compliment for nothing because they don't always say that. They don't always call us their BFF. Here, what's going on, we have Jesus, his enemies, are coming after him again. We have read repeatedly that Jesus' adversaries that they have a commitment, a dogged commitment to bring him down. They want Jesus out of the way. And this, again, as you've been tracking through the Gospel of Mark, has not been going on for chapters. But understand that these chapters in the Gospel of Mark, that they're representing years. So imagine that you have someone after you that wants you out of the way for years. Not just for a moment, but for years. There was no person on earth that Jesus could appeal to that could even remotely help him and his disciples. Jesus simply just had to go through. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know that the devil is relentless in trying to overthrow your faith and anyone that has the possibility of helping you in your life. The devil is relentless at trying to overthrow your faith and anyone else that can remotely help you in, you, in your life to grow spiritually. 
So here in verse 13 in Mark chapter 12, it says that they sent to him. The idea that they sent to him, it indicates that there were people uh, behind uh, the scene who were pulling the strings of objections against Jesus. A guess would be that uh, there were men who were sent in, in essence, that they were messengers. So these Herodians, uh, these Pharisees, that they were uh, messengers of someone else. Normally these uh, Herodians and these Pharisees, that they didn't like each other. But as you know how the saying goes, if, if your enemy is my enemy, that makes us what? Friends. If your enemy is my enemy, then that automatically makes us friends, so they say. So the Herodians and the Pharisees, they got together because they both had a common enemy uh, in their targets, and that enemy was Jesus Christ and his disciples. I'm not sure if you know anything about the Herodians, but very quickly, the Herodians, uh, they were political supporters uh, of, of, Herod, uh, of Herod Antipas. So they had a political stint in mind. Whereas the, the Pharisees, they were like this uber, supposedly uber uh, spiritual elites of Israel. So their primary purpose uh, for confronting Jesus was to entrap him in his words, as we saw here in verse 13. When all else fails, the best you can do for someone you are against is to trap them in their words. Uh, when you can't seem to figure things out, then we'll just say, well, what we'll do, we'll trick them in his words. But what in the world would cause you to want to stoop so low to entrap another person? Is life that bad for you that all you can think about is, how can I get them to say things that I know they really didn't mean? Are you excessively trying to get them back even though you should have stopped a long time ago. Learn how to forgive and if possible leave those things behind you, right? Because one day someone will have to forgive you, amen? But here it is, listen to this. Because of the condition of our hearts, our very blessings may be hanging in the balance. Hear what I'm saying? Because of the condition of our hearts, that God, he may want to bless you, but he's not blessing you because you have it out for someone else. I believe and we know it to be a fact that, uh, that God wanted to bless Israel. But these Pharisees, these Herodians, and also, as you know, the Sadducees and the scribes, all these groups of folk, that they had their minds set on getting rid of Jesus, not knowing that they would stop the blessings of God from occurring in Israel. Do you think these men would be blessed because of their actions? What about you? What do you do in your life to stop the blessings of God? So they wanted to trap Jesus, not only in saying something which deliberately contradicts the leaders of Israel, but they wanted to hear him uh, contradict something that 
uh, was an edict from Rome itself. They were hanging on each and every word of Jesus Christ that he spoke, uh, trying to find some reason to say, see there, didn't I tell you, didn't I tell you that he was a heretic? Didn't I tell you that he was against our government? They wanted to cast Jesus off. And they wanted to catch him off guard and trip him up with the hopes that hopefully, uh, finally, we'll get this Jesus out of the way. Later on, uh, before Pilate, they would still use situations like this. This is interesting. As an opportunity to invent lies about Jesus. Uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 23, verse 2. Luke chapter 23, verse 2. In the passage it reads, and they began to accuse him, saying, look at this. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king, right? So there's this thing that if you tell part of the truth, that even that part of the truth can become a lie. So they begin to speak to Jesus by giving him compliments. Uh, beware of the person that begins a conversation uh, by giving you unwarranted compliments, especially when they have previously been against you. They compliment Jesus how? How do they compliment him? Number one, here in verse 14, they say, Oh, Jesus, you are true. And then they say, Jesus... Number two, you don't care about what anybody else thinks. You don't care about anybody else's opinion. You're your own man. Three, they said Jesus was not influenced by the way people look. He says that you would come into church or, or, or go into the marketplace. That uh, They said Jesus couldn't care less how you were dressed to the teeth. Jesus could care less of how sharp you looked. It didn't matter to him. Jesus, this is you. You the man, Jesus. And then finally they said that, Jesus, you truly taught the way of God. Oh, Jesus, you good. You're all of that and a bag of chips, Mr. Jesus. But we all know that these were not compliments for compliments' sakes. But they had set out again to trap him in his talk. So now they move down to two important questions that Jesus had to address. So after these uh, introductory niceties, they asked two questions that are related to one, one, another, one another. Number one, they asked the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Uh, do I pay my property taxes? Do I pay my sales tax? Do I pay to have that sticker in my window? Do I pay to have license plates on my car? Is it necessary for me to pay for all those things? So uh, they asked Jesus the question, is it lawful? Is it lawful? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Uh, think about that question. Is it lawful? Obviously, Caesar had already imposed taxes upon the nation. Why would they ask the question, is it lawful? Second question. Well, 
Depending upon your answer to that then, should we pay them or should we not? What should you do? Has there ever been anyone who's never paid their property taxes here? No, don't raise your hand. No, don't do that. But we know what happens to the people that don't pay their property taxes, right? Yeah, you'll live rent-free probably for a couple of months. But after that, you will be free of all rent. Amen? So this would have, uh, these questions would have placed the ordinary person in the hot seat because of the double jeopardy nature of the line of questioning. In other words, you have nothing to gain. So by Jesus answering the question, what will he gain? Nothing. Jesus is not going to gain anything by answering the question. But if he answered the question incorrectly, he had everything to lose. At odds in this question is Israel's obligation to remain at peace with Rome versus the messianic excitement Jesus had created with his ministry. Understand that 20 years earlier, 20 years earlier, here in Israel, that there was a tax revolt in Israel against Rome. 20 years earlier, there was a tax revolt against Rome in Israel. Now, uh, remember that uh, Rome itself, it was not uh, uh, this type of de democracy that we experience here. In this case, can you imagine what would happen if they didn't pay their taxes? It wasn't simply a matter of, okay, well, we'll just send them the first notice, right? All right, uh, we'll, we'll send them the second notice. And then we'll just send somebody in to, we'll cut their water off. And then we'll cut their electricity off. And then we'll cut their gas off. No. Uh, as a group of people begin uh, uh, to, to ignore their tax bill coming from the government, what Rome would do is, they say, got you. And they send in the army. Rome would say, you don't pay your money? They send the army after you, and they get you up out of there, and they can put you in jail, but in this case, it, it resulted in lots of violence. So remember that Jesus knows better than you know yourself. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Here in Mark 12, beginning in verse 15, he says, the scripture says, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Right? I, I can imagine if there was like a gospel of, of David. If I wrote the gospel, this is why God didn't entrust me to write the gospel, right? I would have said, why, Jesus would have said, why put me to the test, you fools? Well, that's what I would have said. And I would say, after that, I would add, because y'all so ignorant, y'all don't even realize who I am. So the scripture says, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, It's Caesar, right? And we all know that Caesar is not a proper name, that that is a what? It is a title. It's like saying president or king. In fact, it is like saying king. 
All right, so, uh, so Caesar, they said it's Caesar. It is our royal leader. But Jesus already knows the hearts and minds of people, and this was surely no surprise to him. This is made more clear when the scripture says that he knew their hypocrisy. He knew this was a way of life for them. He knew they were up to no good. They could not keep their intentions hidden from Jesus. How is it possible for you to hide behind a facade and expect God not to know what you're doing? You can't hide from God. Ask Adam and Eve. They'll tell you. You can't hide from God. So when you think to deceive God, and that's exactly what this is, uh, you in essence put on a red suit and hold up a sign which says, God, God, I'm up to something. So when you think you're keeping it all in and you think that you have a stony face before God, that inside your spirit, your spirit has a sign up saying, God, God, I'm up to something. How many of you have that sign waving right now? You have a sign holding your spirit that on the inside you're looking all composed. That on the inside uh, that you're looking all that. On the inside, uh, as we look at you, it, it looks as if you are a nice spiritual saint. But God is looking at you with his flaming fire eyes and says, you are up to no good. Now, I'm not pointing at anybody. This, that's why I have all my fingers out, right? So don't say, you are pointing at me because I'm not pointing at you. Right? There you go. How was that? Right? Do it like that. So God is saying that you're up to something. But by now, the suspense is becoming very intense on the scene where the bad guys, the Pharisees and the Herodians, are ready to square off with Jesus. If there were people around, they all just wanted to hear Jesus reply because they knew that this was a very tricky question. So if, if you were standing around, that you wouldn't want to go nowhere. You know how it is. Wait a minute. I, I don't want to go yet because I want to see what's going on. God would say, uh, uh, no, you don't want to see what's about to happen because they're in trouble. But Jesus calls them out and he asks them the question, why do you put me to the test? They bring Jesus a denarius, and after he requested it, he looked at it. He asked them, whose image is on this coin? Do you think Jesus knew whose image was on the coin? Right, we, we know that Jesus knew whose image was on the coin. Why? How do we know that Jesus knew whose image was on the coin? How do we know that? What was that? Come on. Uh, yeah, he's God, and number one, he also grew up in the, er in the area, right? So surely by now, uh, being around 32 years old, Jesus knew, 32, 33 years old, Jesus knew about money of the area, number one. But had he not, with him being God and God being omniscient, means that God knows everything, he knew exactly what was on that coin. So depicted on the coin was an image of Caesar, as they replied. So what do you give Caesar? What do you give your government? Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. 
Where is your allegiance? Or, or where do you submit your life? Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, was Jesus trying to stump them? Was that his primary uh, goal in answering them? Was he trying to entrap them? In the process, Jesus was trying to teach a lesson in order to draw people to himself. Uh, this is the main point Jesus wants us all to understand, but we must not get stuck just in the conflict that the Pharisees and the Herodians uh, had with Jesus. But understand that conflict is important in the grand scheme of things, especially as it leads to the cross, because had that conflict not been there, Jesus would have never made it to the cross. That was necessary. So beginning to look at this statement by Jesus, it should immediately bring to mind an issue that may be an issue for you or not. But the discussion certainly impacts your life. And here it is. Jesus said, render the things to the government that belong to the government and render the things to God that belong to God. Should there be a separation of church and state? Was Jesus promoting this idea of a separation between church and state? Well, you give the things that belong to government to the government over here, and you give those things that belong to God over here, over here. Keep them set. Was Jesus saying that? In other words, was he saying your church life is your church life, and it should never intersect politics or matters concerning the public, like schools and what can be said in the public on the news, in newspaper and on journalism issues. Well, some even wrongly believe that our Constitution promotes a separation of church and state. But this is what our Constitution says says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Never at any time did our governments uh, ever say that there should be a separation of church and state. Never. Never said this. So we could easily misinterpret, hear what I said, misinterpret, we can easily misinterpret what Jesus says here about rendering things to Caesar that belong to Caesar and the things that belong to God to God as an issue of separation between church and state. But I tell you, brothers and sisters, that Jesus was not even thinking about that. We know this to be true. So Jesus looks at the coin which was handed to him, and he asks the question, whose image did it bear? It had the image of Caesar on it, and we know from reading Scripture. But not only did it have uh, Caesar's image on it, but it also had his name on it. I think this was Emperor uh, Tiberius at the time. But what things should they render to What should you give to the government? Well, you know. Again, Jesus was not trying to separate uh, the church out or your faith uh, out from your public living. Because if that were true, uh, then I would say your salvation would only last as long as you were in church. And as soon as you step outside of the church 
walls, uh, there will be no need for you to go and to make disciples of all the earth. Wouldn't be necessary. Jesus, and what is said here, he's saying that there are times that you must give to Caesar or give to the government those things that rightfully belong to it. Why? Because many times the government, it operates in a way that reflects the hand of God. Did you realize that? That sometimes the government, now I didn't say all the time, amen? Sometimes the government operates in a way that reflects the hand of God. Right? You're saying, well, what are you talking about? Well, uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 13, verses 6 and 7. Now, before you jump to one side or another, you just hold on because I'm not done with the message yet. Romans chapter 13, verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, Paul says, For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers. Uh-oh. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Amen? So in other words, what Jesus is telling us, what, what Paul is telling us, that there are times in which our government, it operates in our best interests. Imagine our nation today if our government never put in regulation concerning stop signs and red lights and green lights or speed limits. As a matter of fact, some of you act like they still hadn't done it. Imagine if there were no county hospital. Imagine for a moment if eventually uh, that our court system said that you can't treat one people better, better than another person. Now I believe it's going to an extreme now. But we also must understand we still must love one another at the same time. Imagine if our government never really put in a process for our kids to go to school. There are times that our government, they do things that help us, amen? That, quite frankly, we need the police. We need our military. We need these things. We need folks looking over our shoulders concerning different aspects of our life. So the, does this mean then that, well, I still don't agree, so when I see, when I see the president, I'm just going to call him a fool? Or I see the senator, especially if it's of a party that I don't like, then I'm just going to call him ignorant? No, we're supposed to do what? It says uh, we're supposed to give respect to whom respect is what? 
all their due. Honor to whom honor is due or old, that we still must respect them. I remember the time that I met uh, 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 Rami Emanuel one time. I still called him sir, and I still called him Mayor Emanuel when I met him. Mayor, it's just nice to meet you. It's my, nice to meet you. So let's take a picture. I'm like, I got froze for, frozen for a second. I'm like, oh, okay, I don't think anybody's going to see this, right? And uh, anyway, you know how those things go. Uh, but, but nevertheless, we're supposed to respect them. And the best thing that we can, the best thing that we can really do is that when it's time, if we don't like the way that they rule, is to do what? Do what? What do we need? We need to vote, vote them out of office. Right. Pray and vote, vote and pray. Pray while you vote, right? Vote them out of office if you don't like it, but we must respect them, amen? Because it is not an easy job. I don't care who's there. It is not an easy job. So rendering or giving things of life to Caesar could also represent a person's existence outside of church on Sunday. While there are no biblical justifications for that position based off of this passage, there is experiential data that supports people actually think and believe this way. They believe that church life should only happen on Sunday between the hours of this and between the hours of that. And then once it's over with, I can act like the devil and act like the government myself. Some people feel that a given to God is at least giving God a couple of hours on Sunday. Well, I understand the sentiments behind that, except it is as necessary. It does not represent the view of a mature Christian stance on God. Amen? So if you are a mature person in Christ, uh, you don't have this very small outlook of your Christian walk. So then what do you give to God? Jesus said to them, render to in essence, to God, the things that are God's. What belongs to God belongs to God. Uh, this is one of those most fascinating things we hear in the words of uh, Jesus as they reverberate in our ears. But I know you may be asking me, what's so fascinating? What is reverberating in your ears about the Word of God now? Man, you, you have got to see this. Jesus is telling us, well, listen to what I'm saying. I want you to hear this. Jesus is telling us that God wants to lay claim to everything. But wait a minute. You just finished saying, because uh, Jesus said himself, render the things of the Caesar of the Caesars and to God the things that are God. So how can you now turn around and say that God wants to lay claim to everything? Well, he doesn't want to lay claim to wickedness or injustice or ignoring those people in need, but he wants to lay claim to everything else, and he has the right to do so. We read earlier in Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein, and that it all belongs to God. This is one of the ways we relate God's kingdom agenda to the entire world, that God wants the world. He just doesn't want one person. 
He just doesn't want to see one person come to Christ and then he's going to roll this whole thing up. Why do you think it's taking so long for God's judgment to come up on the earth? Do you understand why the scripture says that God so what? God so loved the who? The, 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 the one person? Or just your family? The scripture says what? God so loved the... Well, he loves the world. He wants to see everyone come to himself, but we know from Scripture that everyone is not going to come to him. So here we go. Let's look at our text to uncover how this could possibly be with just a short verse to consider. Rending the things of Caesar, Caesar, the things of God, the things that are God. Jesus originally asked the people, whose likeness and inscription is this in regard to that coin? Remember the, the denarius there, verse 16? Uh, other translations like uh, the Christian Standard Version or the NIV, they also accurately translate that word uh, likeness as image. Either one will work uh, interchangeably. So in Genesis 1.26, we know that God himself said, let us make man in our what? Image. When the Old Testament Greek is used to translate the word image in Genesis 1.26, it is the same word used to translate the word likeness or image in Mark 12, verse 16. So what Jesus is telling us is that whatever is made in the image of the world that you give it to the world and whatever is made in the image of God that you give it to God. What then is made in the image of Caesar? Everything that is in essence sinful and everything that is broken is made in the image of Caesar. Say it again. Everything that is broken, and everything that is sinful is made in the image of Caesar, even though there are parts of uh, Caesar's way of thinking concerning government which we must submit ourselves to. But then, what's made in the image of God? That which is beautiful which God adores because it was cast in his workshop and by his hands while reflecting his heart and loving kindness. God created all of mankind in his image. And then when we made it to Genesis chapter 3, uh, those things that were made in his image became sinful and broken. In us can be found love, joy, compassion, which is true of God and not even possible with the devil. The devil uh, may be content, but he's only content if he's able to displace God as king. So the question that you may still have in your mind, where do I place my allegiance? Who do I submit to? 
Well, know that even though on that coin was the image of Caesar, uh, Caesar just as a human being, that he was also made what? In the image of God. Oh yeah, he was sinful now. Don't, don't get me wrong. He was wrong. Don't get me wrong. But still, because he was a human being, he was made or created in the image of God. God wants you to know this. and He wants you to place all of your allegiance to him. He wants you to submit totally to him. Now, there's no doubt you are constantly being asked to choose to place your allegiance or your submission here or there. Right? But the world isn't asking you to properly divide your time. They are asking you to choose sides. Uh, will it be Caesar? Will it be Caesar or will it be God? They're asking that question. And you are living your life sometimes at that tug of war. Where does my heart go? Is it the world? Is it God? Is it world? Is it God? Which one is it? Who will you serve? What will you be a part of? What will you give of yourself at work, at school, uh, on your, in your community? Will you give in to friends and peer pressure? Or will you give yourself totally to Jesus Christ? Well... If Caesar's picture is on the money, then it must belong to him. But if God's image is on you, then you must belong to him. But God will not fully accept you now unless you go through the person of Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus comes into the picture. He comes into the picture to claim that which belongs to God to give it back to God. Again, it is not an automatic deal for us as we must come to grips with who we're supposed to belong to. Deciding how to live your life, whether to Caesar or to God, that's an easy thing. Because if you fully submit yourself to God, you know that every aspect of your life, it belongs to God. Now, when your government asks you to do things that are ungodly, are you then, is it then uh, demanded that you obey the government? Try it again, all right? If your government asks you to do things that are ungodly, are you demanded or commanded by God then to follow your governments? Okay, I think some people get it. Some people don't get it yet. If your government asks you to do things that are ungodly, are you demanded or commanded by God to follow your government? No, you're not. Because God is supreme. The question is, are you really ready to make that decision? Are you really ready to make that decision now? To give up things that they may look at you and say, if you don't do this, then you're fired. Or I'm going to give you an F on an assignment. Been there. Been there. So the Caesar of God, where are you going to place your allegiance? Who are you going to submit to? 
God first, everybody else second. And if anyone else is in contradiction to what God says, then by default we do what? We go with God, and we let God deal with the consequences of following him. Amen? Let's pray.